You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. do believe this is one of the more complicated parables of Jesus. It's, it's pretty difficult. Uh, it's, it's difficult to kind of decode who is who and what is going on, but also, if we're honest, it's a little harsh, too. It ends with um, this group of people being slaughtered in front of a king. And my goal this morning is that we would leave with a clearer picture of what exactly Jesus is trying to tell us, and further, what he is calling us to do. And so, I think, the, I don't always think this, but I think the best method to tackle this this morning is to kind of take it verse by verse and unpack a little bit of each verse, and then at the end, spend some time um, deciphering all of that and kind of giving us some tools to leave here this morning with. So, let's, let's jump in uh, to verse 11 immediately. It says this, as they heard these teachings, he proceeds to tell a parable Because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed, the disciples supposed, that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So, luckily for us, the the why of this parable is clear. Why does Jesus tell this parable? Because they're entering Jerusalem. And even now as we near Easter Sunday, the narrative of Jesus' ministry is coming to a close here in Luke. The next passage that we're going to read next Sunday is called the triumphal entry. That's when That's when Jesus returns to Jerusalem and things start speeding up to his death and eventual resurrection. So, he tells this parable to continue to shape and correct a misunderstanding about what's about to happen, right? Because the disciples are starting to think, okay, we're going into Jerusalem. We've been following Jesus for a long time. We've all been poor. We've, We've lacked food sometimes, and Jesus had to multiply it and... And now we're going into Jerusalem, and I'm excited about that because what's going to happen is Jesus is going to be king on the throne, and everybody's going to bow down to him, and we're going to be put in a place of honor. And that's not what happens. And Jesus knows that's not what's about to happen, right? He's actually about to be crucified. So they weren't comprehending what's about to take place. And and they're not totally off base because we believe that there is a time where that is coming, where Jesus returns and rules and reigns here on earth in the manner that they were expecting. But that isn't what's about to happen when he goes in Jerusalem. So this parable is to help them and continue to reshape for them what things are about to look like. And... Not only that, it's a call to them to to give them tools of how to live in the in-between, right? So, that's relevant for us because we are in this in-between. There's an already not yet of Jesus' current reign. So, Jesus, we believe after he dies and resurrects that he ascended to the throne of heaven and he rules and reigns there now. However, there's a time where he is coming back. And so we are in the in-between, and Jesus gives us uh, a parable here to tell us how that in-between should look. So let's continue in verse 12. He said, therefore, and this is the parable, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. 
Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minus and said to them, engage in business until I come. And then we get this, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. So the why of the parable is established, right? He said this to reshape what they think is about to happen. So our ears should perk up when we hear the beginning of this parable talk about a nobleman and a kingdom. Right? There's something for us to learn and understand about the nature of God's kingdom and the timing that it will be established. And so the nobleman in the parable represents Jesus, and he's leaving to receive for himself a kingdom. And he says, I'll return at some future time. And that mirrors what we know to be in Scripture. True, right? That Jesus after his death and resurrection, ascends to the throne, receives his kingdom, and says, I will return at a future time. And in the meantime, the servants, the followers of this nobleman, the servants, are given a task to complete, and it's to engage in business, to turn a profit. But they aren't, they aren't given this task without help, right? They're given a mina. And so, a minus is a unit of wealth. It's actually a weight of wealth that's around, uh, equal to around a four-month wage at this time. So, it's nothing, to, it's nothing to scoff at, but it's not any kind of long-term, like, thing you could live off of for a year or so. But he says, take this, take this money, take this wealth, and engage in business while I'm gone. So, he gives them a task and gives them the means to accomplish that task. And to be successful in it. And then he leaves to go and receive his kingdom, right? And we get this, this side narrative. It's one verse that says that the, the citizens hated him and did not want him to reign over them. And likewise, Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem and be hung on a cross because citizens will hate him. And they will say, mockingly, you are the king of the Jews. Right, so this is a foreshadow to his, his mocked, reviled, uh, indict, indicted, tortured, spit-on crucifixion. Those who he will rule over will first reject his kingship. And yet, in the parable, and, and this is true of, of reality as well, uh, the king returns as full king anyway. The grumble against him being king doesn't affect the kingdom that he receives. And actually, we'll see that, th that this sideline, that they go after him and grumble about him being king, it doesn't affect his kingdom at all. The next thing that happens is that he returns as king. So let's continue to read. Verse 15, when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered the servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. And the first came to him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minus more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. So the king is back, right? This is the return of this king, and he is going to judge the faithfulness of the servant's by seeing how they used their time while he was gone. And the first servant comes back and reports that, reports that he has turned a 1,000% profit. One has, has now returned 10, so he has 11 total. 
And the king responds with three things. He, he commends the man. Well done, good servant. So there's praise. And there's a reason. Because, well done, because you have been faithful with very little. And he gives him a promotion. You will now have authority over ten cities. So the servant is granted full participation and full authority in the kingdom. Why? Because of his faithfulness. The amount his faithfulness produced, which is 10 minus, directly correlates to the promotion, right? 10 minus 10 cities. But, but what I think we're going to see as this parable plays out is that it's less about the profit that the servants produce and so much more about the faithfulness that causes the production of profit. So much more about the faithfulness in how they conducted their business. Let's see, a similar scenario uh, drives that home. In 18, it says, And the second came, Lord, your mina has made five minus. And the king says to him, Well, you will be over five cities. And so similarly, right, five mina produces five, uh, a, produ- a promotion of faithfulness that, that is over five cities. And so we can kind of assume that this is the same for every servant that has produced any kind of profit, right, from one to ten to whatever. And the reward is, it, it correlates to the degree of fruitfulness, right? But the fruitfulness is still a result of um, what, what the nobleman sowed by giving them the mina, Right? They believed him, they trusted him, they accepted the task, and they accepted the, um, the resources to be able to accomplish this task. And they were successful, but only because the king generously gave them the resources to be successful. And so what we're about to see play out is what unfaithfulness looks like in the next, in the next part of the the parable, it says this, verse 20, then another came saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You, you take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. So this one, this one servant, the unfaithful servant, takes his one resource that is given by the nobleman and he puts it where? In a handkerchief, which by all accounts signifies um, a foolish and unsafe deposit, right? It's not a secure place to put it in a handkerchief. There's no potential for growth. There's no potential for gains, uh, profit or not. And, and when pressed for why he does this, his excuse is a charge against the king. I was afraid of you. You're severe. You're harsh. And further, you're a thief. The charge is that the king takes money from those who is, he is in authority over. And we need to understand that this is a really, really serious charge against the king. He doesn't follow the, chi- the king because he doesn't trust the king. He doesn't trust the task. He doesn't believe that anything good is going to come out of this task, right? It's a serious charge, but is it a true charge? And I think if we look back at the other servants, we would see that 
Um, the king has proven himself trustworthy and generous. He's proven himself not the man that the unfaithful servant has charged him to be, right? He's, he gives them the resources to be successful. He celebrates their faithfulness. Well done. He doesn't take the minus back or the profit back, right? There's no indication that the king demands what was, what was gained back. And he does what? He promotes them. He gives them more authority over cities. So his response to faithfulness is extreme generosity and the promotion, the share in the authority over the kingdom with me. It's not, cool, let me get my investment back and I'll take the profit. Thanks for doing that. It's the well done. It's the share in my authority as king. So in response to the charge of the unfaithful servant, the king responds in a way that I think is clever. Let's read it. He says to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. So he's going to use the charge of the unfaithful servant as a, a logical kind of argument. He says this, you knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. If that's true, then why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I could have collected it with interest. Well, he, uses, he uses the charge, the own words of the unfaithful servant against him. Right? He's exposing hypocrisy and foolishness of the servant. He says, if I'm severe and if I'm harsh, as you say, then the least you would have done is put it in the bank so you wouldn't lose it. And so it would turn some sort of profit. Right? So the servant either seriously misjudged who the king is, or he's lying to, unco- to cover up his unfaithfulness. But either way, he's utterly unfaithful. All right, like the, the version of this, uh, is res- of his response, is pretty common today, right? Like people, I've heard. People say, um, if the Christian God is so harsh and so severe, I don't want to serve a God like that. Right? I don't, I don't want to serve a God that would be so harsh. And, and there's two realities we need to get from that. One, our God isn't harsh. He's gentle, and we're going to see that play out throughout the crucifixion, the death of Jesus on our behalf, and the resurrection But two, if that were true, then you should really want to serve him in order to avoid his harshness. Like, if if God is the God who you're saying is, and he's not, but if he was, it would be foolish to not serve him because of that. That's what what the king's saying here. If I'm as severe as you said I am, why why wouldn't you do anything? You put it in a handkerchief. Like, that's the equivalent of taking money today and putting it in a handkerchief. Nothing happens. It's still there. If anything happens, it gets stolen. Like, there's, it's not safe at all. Right? The, it, there's a logical failure in this argument that the unfaithful servant is, is being exposed to. And we have a better story than this lie, right? We have 
a God who is abundant and gracious and gentle and forgiving and slow to anger, abounding in love towards those who believe in him, who have faith in him. So the unfaithful servant isn't unfaithful because he doesn't turn a profit. Let's be clear about that. He's unfaithful because he doesn't believe the king is who the king is. Or worse, he's lying to cover up his laziness. So let's see how things end, and it's fairly dramatic. In 24, it says this, And he said to those who stood by, Take the mana from him, give it to the one who has ten. And the people around say, Lord, he has ten minus, as if to say, why does he need another? And the king says, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And then he says this, as for the enemies of mine who do not want to reign, me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. So first in, the, in that section, the faithful servant who, had, who grew ten mina from one is now given another. And it's not about the rich get richer. It's about the faithful, right? So the faithful servant um, is rewarded with more authority, more responsibility, further disproving the unfaithful servant's claim, right? That this king steals, reaps what he does not sow, collects what he did not deposit. So, so moreover, this is disproved. And the people around think this is unjust, but that's the king's response. When I return, the faithful will be given more, and the unfaithful will not. And then we get the startling scene where the citizens from verse 14 who did not want the king to reign over them, they're dealt with shockingly yet appropriately and put to death. So this is the parable. It's pretty simple, right? But now that we've kind of talked through it and unpacked what's going on here, I think we can draw some things out and apply them. Um, and I think... It's helpful to look at these groups and these, situa- these scenarios as three, Jesus talking about three groups of people. The first group, we'll, we'll kind of work backwards. The first group is the citizens who reject him. So Jesus is referring in part to the people who will soon reject him as, his, as he walks into Jerusalem, who will literally reject the person of Jesus and call for his death. But even today, there are those who, right, unlike the faithful servant, they don't associate with Jesus at all. Unlike the faithful and unfaithful servant, they don't associate with the king. They outright and flatly reject him. And, it, and again, Jesus, Jesus has said and will continue to say, for those who reject me, harsh, hard punishment is coming for them too, but it's just. The reality is Jesus is their king, just like the king in the parable is the citizen's king. Jesus is their king, whether they acknowledge him or not. But it's so much better to believe the king and be part of his kingdom. And the question is, who will invite these people who reject Jesus to meet and know the king, to meet and know Jesus, if not us? Right, a lot 
We're going to see this unpacked over the next few minutes, but a lot of our faithfulness to the king, a lot of our faithfulness to Jesus, if we want to act like the faithful servant in the parable, a lot of that looks like our faithful delivery of the good news of what Jesus has done. And we deliver that to these people, to the people who reject him. And we invite them in. Just like Jesus, when he walks and marches to his crucifixion, is dying for some of the very people in the crowd who are rejecting him and calling for his death and mocking him and spitting on him or denying him. So that's the first group, the citizens, the people who reject Jesus flatly. The second group are those like the unfaithful servant. They associate with Jesus the king, but they don't really believe who he, he is who he said he is. Right? This is the unfaithful servant who knows who the king is, but doesn't trust him, doesn't believe in him. And Jesus says, the fruit of your life, how you live your life, is evidence that you trust and believe in me. So it's not about the amount that you produce, but so much more about the heart behind how you live and labor for the king and the kingdom. Right? We've said it this way, that good deeds, good works, aren't necessary for salvation. But they absolutely prove our salvation. Let's make sure we get that, right? We might, be, we might be tempted to believe that the issue with the unfaithful servant is that he doesn't multiply the money. But the truth is so much deeper. What makes him unfaithful is not, is not the prophet, but that he doesn't trust the king. He doesn't believe that Jesus is who he said he is. He doesn't believe the king to be generous, kind, gracious, nor does he really believe the king is powerful or authoritative. If he thought these were true, he would have done more, right? That's what the king says, but he does nothing. So the unfaithful servant thought he knew who the king was, but he was wrong. And his mistake is costly. So the lesson for us is we need to be careful and we need to assess our lives. Do we treat, the question we should ask ourselves is do we treat Jesus like the king that he is? Do we treat him as Lord? Do we listen to what he's commanded and do we follow it? And so Jesus has said a lot of things, and we've explored them over Lent and over the past few years, right? But the summary is this, in Jesus' own words, love God and love each other. Right? That's, that's the great commandment, that we would love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our strength, and that we would love each other flowing out of that love for God. And in doing so, we would be faithful And so that's, that's what we've been asked. And the third group of people is this, the faithful servants of Jesus, to which the response is, well done. Your reward is great. Right? The faithful servants are faithful because they believe the king is who he said he is. They believe Jesus is going to receive the kingdom. 
They know he's a good king. They believe him to be gracious. So this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying to the disciples, look, like, we're going into Jerusalem, and some of you guys think that I'm about to take over. Y'all think that means the revolution is here now on earth? And he's saying, your, your expectations are off. I am going to secure a kingdom. I am going to rule and reign in authority. But what you picture isn't happening yet. I'm not going to do so on earth yet. There's an in-between. And so the parable breaks down at this point because Jesus does so much more to receive the kingdom than the king in the parable. Right? When Jesus goes to receive the kingdom, he must be sacrificed to die, to hang on our behalf, to pay for our unfaithfulness, to pay for our fear and unbelief and our rejection of him. And then he rises, and then he ascends to the throne and leaves to receive his kingdom. And in the meantime, we've been given a task, right, to love God, to love one another. And in fact, at his ascension, he gives another task called the Great Commission. It says this, all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me, so the kingdom Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So, brothers and sisters, like the servants, we've been given a task. And we, like the servants, have been given the resources to be successful in the task. We've been given the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Therefore, our response isn't fear of the king. It's boldness. It's faithfulness. And we trust him with the fruit. So we should love him radically. We should love each other radically. And we should share the gospel radically and liberally, investing in the lives of neighbors, coworkers, and friends who don't believe. And we do this by building relationships, exposing those relationships to Christian community, and sharing the gospel, who Jesus is and what he's done. And we should trust that we've been given the spirit to be successful in the task. Do we believe he is the king who he said he is? Do we believe it's his joy to give us the kingdom? If we do, then we should be bold, and we should be faithful with the task. Right? Remembering we don't work to be saved. We have been saved. And when we believe that we've been saved by the king and that he wants to bless us and have us be part of his kingdom, co-heirs, then that work comes as a joy. The work of sharing the gospel and loving God and one another flows from the security we have as co-heirs in the kingdom. So throughout the season of Lent, We've been discussing what Jesus is saying and what it takes to be part of his kingdom. And here Jesus says, believe I am who I said I am. Believe I am God. Believe in who I am and what I've come to do. Believe in faith. And soon the King Jesus will return. He is coming. 
in grace, in power, in authority, and he will rule on this earth in love and justice. And as the faithful followers of him, we will be invited to rule with him. And when we come to the table every Sunday, we come to celebrate what the king had to do to secure the kingdom for us. And so if you feel like more the, the unfaithful servant this morning, or maybe you feel like the citizens who've rejected him, I want to invite you to believe Jesus is who he said he is. And let's be honest, like, I do things and think things that make me relate to the unfaithful servant every day. But by, by the power of the Spirit, I'm being changed. By my community, I'm being changed. And when I come to the table every Sunday, I come to celebrate what the king had to do to invite me in. And I acknowledge his body was broken, his blood was shed on my behalf. He did it for you too. And so we can be made faithful servants when we come and repent of our unfaithfulness, when we come and repent of our rejection. So we'll be made righteous by the body and blood of Jesus. We celebrate that and remember it when we come to the table. So my prayer for us this morning is that we wouldn't be discouraged, but that we would see that we have been resourced well by a good king. We can believe he is who he said he is. We can respond in faith by loving one another, loving him, and sharing the gospel. Let's pray. Father God, would you... Remind all of us the kind of king you are, patient, loving, good, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, loving justice, holy, set apart. We remember the king that you are, and Jesus, will we remember what you had to do to become that king, that you were killed, mocked abandoned because of our sin. And Lord, what we see this morning beyond anything else that we have been made into the faithful servants by the power of your spirit and the power of your death on our behalf. And so would we step into that boldly knowing that you've resourced us with so much more than money with the spirit of power, and we can boldly proclaim who you are and what you've done and leave the fruit to you. Lord, we trust that this morning, will we trust that this week, will we encourage one another in it, will we stir one another up for good works, will we point one another to you and your cross in love, and will we liberally share the gospel that's transformed us from rejectors or unfaithful servants to faithful servants. And Lord, will we look forward to a day 
as we participate in a foreshadow of the kingdom meal in just a second. We look forward to a day where you greet us and tell us, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. Come, sit, eat. My co-heir. My child. My brother, my son. My daughter, my sister. Lord, would, as, we, as we celebrate the next two weeks, what you've done, would we not forget that? Would we be encouraged this morning? Lord, we love you. We trust you. We believe you are who you said you are. God, King, Savior, Lord. We praise you. In your name we pray. Amen.